0: So as you see on the screen, Kids Children's Church is now, so you are dismissed at this point, and any visitors with children, they are welcome to head out the back and meet their leaders in that corner over there, so welcome. Well, before we continue here, let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Oh Lord, um, as we worship you, Lord, this morning we've just been reminded so much of your love. And Lord, we confess that we often don't get that, don't understand that very well. And we confess that sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable because we're not used to that kind of language with you. So Lord, I just pray that you can pierce through our humanity, pierce through our doubts, and just reveal yourself to us today. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you move in this place, move over each person that's here, and I pray that you will encourage and bring life. To your people today that you love so deeply. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. And thank you, Pastor Bob, for an encouraging word and praying for us as a congregation. Uh, My name is Don Fraze, and I serve here as the transitional pastor. And uh, that wonderful, smiling man that you see up here most weeks, Pastor Darren, he and the youth group and a lot of the youth leaders are at a baptism at another church this morning, one of One of the people who attends the youth group doesn't attend here on Sundays, but is getting baptized, and they all wanted to support her today. So that's where they are today. Well, I have the privilege of continuing our series in the book of Revelation, and specifically on chapters 2 and 3, where we are talking about the churches of Revelation. Now, today we come to church number 6, so we're almost done. And, you know, most of these places none of you have ever heard of, And so I'm really excited for you this week because finally we're at a city that you've heard of. So are you ready? The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. So let's talk about Philadelphia. How many of you are devastated that the Phillies lost to the cheaters? Oh, come on. I know some of you are. Now, the other thing I wondered, are there really any Flyers fans anymore? (laughs) No, no one's admitting it. I know there's Eagles fans. Any Eagles fans out there? Okay, this is not a Philadelphia-loving city, but maybe you love Philadelphia cream cheese. I don't know, but that is good stuff, right? And I think that there's like, Philadelphia must be a spiritual city because there's probably angels floating around on clouds, eating Philly on yummy pastries and bagels. and Yeah, so aren't you excited that you finally know the city that we're going to talk about this week? Well, most of you are going, what are you talking about, Don? We are not talking about Philadelphia, USA. Okay, you're right. But the name Philadelphia does come from ancient Greece or the area that is now modern day Turkey, which was a part of all of Greek culture in the Greek world at that time. And so yes, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love is the city we're going to today. So on your left, is downtown Philadelphia, USA. And yes, they do have a love sign. Anyone ever been to Philadelphia and seen that sign? This is not a Philadelphia crowd at all. Okay, how many of you are old enough to remember Rocky running up the stairs? That's Philadelphia, you know? Rocky, okay. Some of you are going, what are you talking about? And anyway, these few ancient runes that you see are all that's left. There's not much left of the ancient site of Philadelphia, which would be in the middle of... of of ancient Turkey. Well let me tell you a little bit about the real Philadelphia we're going to talk about today. It actually was founded by an ancient king who loved his brother so much that he named the city after him and so Philadelphia City of Brotherly Love is where that name comes from and Philadelphia USA still uses it but it has ancient roots in Greek culture and that's, that's where it came from. Now most of the cities we've been looking at so far have been kind of coastal cities, not ones that we might really wish we could visit, but maybe we can't relate to. I think we can probably relate a lot to Philadelphia because it's a more inland city and it's kind of our first real agricultural center. So it's kind of a, it was an important trade center, an important agricultural center, and that was a big part of the, uh, the economy of, of Philadelphia. Now the other interesting thing about ancient Philadelphia was that it was referred to as Little Athens. And the reason it was called Little Athens is because it was kind of known as a gateway city to the east. And so the ancient Greeks thought of it as as a gateway city for Greek language and Greek culture and Greek customs to basically spread from Greece throughout the east, which was the more numerous part of the part of the world at that time. So that's that's what, that's why Philadelphia was known as Little Little Athens. They also had lots of temples and and all the kinds of Greek buildings and amphitheaters and all that kind of exciting stuff that we talked about in the other cities. Now, you might remember from last week, we talked about Sardis and how their their history was very much connected to a horrible earthquake that happened in AD 17. And this earthquake leveled the area and Philadelphia was one of these cities as well. But, But Philadelphia was rebuilt by a Roman emperor that put a ton of money into Philadelphia. And so they ended up naming the city after that emperor. And yet after a while, another emperor came along and then the name got changed back. The point is, and keep this in mind for later, Philadelphia had many name changes over its history. And so that whole idea of identity and names and what their names were was a part of how they thought of their city. But they were very, very proud of their city and even the status of being kind of like Little Athens, the eastern gateway city of Greek culture. And, and remember that, that for later as well. Now, the other unique thing about the church, of, the church now in Philadelphia is that this church is called the Faithful Church. And we've been hearing about all of these churches that have been compromising and struggling and falling into sin and falling away from God. And yet, Philadelphia is the church that receives the most praise and no criticism. They're a tough act to follow. They're called the Faithful Church. Now, how many of you, when you were young, In your school days, found report card day stressful. (laughs) You laugh. I did. I found report card day stressful. And I don't know if report cards are anything now today like they were back in the day. But oh my goodness, if you did not have a good report card and you had to go home and show it to your parents, it was fear and trembling. And then if they had to go to parent-teacher interviews, that would be the worst thing ever because they would talk to your teacher about how bad you are and how bad your marks are. Now... How many of you had the annoying family member, brother or sister, that always had the perfect report card? Oh my goodness, that bugged me. I know, I know. And then, of course, they would be like, why can't you be more like your sister or your brother? And you're, well, anyway, all that to say, these letters in Revelation are almost a little bit like Jesus' report card to the churches. And so all the other churches have been getting some pretty poor marks, but here's Philadelphia, they would be the annoying sibling that would be like, they're just getting praise and affirmation as being the faithful church. So we could have a bit of an attitude about Philadelphia, or I hope today, after some of that levity aside, that we will be inspired that faithfulness is possible, even amidst persecution and cultural pressure. Because you know what? The persecution that we've been talking about in every other church was just as true in Philadelphia. And the cultural pressure for them to compromise and and move away from faith was just as hard and just as deep in Philadelphia. And yet somehow they remained faithful. I hope that inspires us today. Because we live in a culture, in a world that the pressure is there all the time, right? To compromise. And sometimes we can think it's impossible to be faithful in all the pressure. I hope Philadelphia can inspire us today. And so, Lord, let your word and this church inspire us today. All right, so let's go to the text. It's in Revelation chapter 3, and the church of Philadelphia starts in verse 7. So starting with verse 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 3. It says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus begins addressing this church by introducing himself like he's done in every other letter. In all the other churches, he's basically used this grand imagery of himself that we read in Revelation chapter one, but this time he uses language that I guess would be perhaps a bit more simple, a little less of that big picture imagery, but he describes himself as the one who is holy and true. And those words are just so common to us that we can just kind of blip by them and hardly think about them. The problem with the word holy is we often get so um, engrossed by the awesomeness, awe, great, powerful God, holy, and that's true. But really, ultimately, what holy means is set apart. And what Jesus is trying to say here to them is, amongst all of the gods, I am set apart. I am the one. And, and, that, and that comes with the word True again, when we think of true, we always think about who has the right facts. But true from a Greek context was more about being real or genuine. So Jesus is introducing himself as, I'm the real deal. I'm the genuine one of all of the many gods that people are worshiping around you. I'm the true one, the real one, the living one, the one you can count on, the one that's set apart for you and for creation. And so that's Jesus' Showing everyone, including us today, this morning, who he is and who we follow. And so then coming out of saying that he's a holy and true one, then he says that he has the key, the key of David. So what's that about? Now, in many traditions, especially in ancient tradition, being given a key was, was the mark of authority. You were, it was kind of like an honor to be given the authority of a key. It might be a little bit like in modern times when someone would be honored maybe by the mayor of a city and be given you're given the key of the city, a little bit like that. But it's kind of that whole idea of authority is what the key is. Now, saying the key of David... Jesus is basically saying that I have the key, the authority, and I have the right lineage. So basically, Jesus is saying, I have the authority to rule. You see, the Jews at the time, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they thought they had the key of David because Messiah was going to come and restore the kingdom And it was going to be through the the royal line of David. And so they thought they had the key of David. They were the ones with the authority and the power for this hope that they had in a kingdom where they would rule and be strong and great again. And yet Jesus had already declared in the Gospels, and he declares again here, that he holds the key of David. He has the authority to rule. He is the one descendant of David. And he is the one, because he is the key, he's the one that opens the kingdom. He opens and shuts the door of the kingdom. The kingdom is not of this world like the Jews were waiting for, but the kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom that we pray about that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer when he said, pray, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom of God is the rule of Christ. Jesus, the key of David, The king of kings, the Lord of lords, he is the one that can open and shut the door to the kingdom. He is the entryway. He is the doorway. He is the gate into the kingdom. He's the one we worship. He's showing them that, that he, amidst their Jewish beliefs as well as living in empire and living in a place where the emperor would want to be seen as God, to be seen as a savior of the world, The emperor used titles like king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not the true, the real, the genuine, the holy set-apart one that holds the key of David to the kingdom of God. That is Jesus, the one we worship. So to be in awe of him. So Jesus, the the key of David. Now he talks in verse 8 about, I know your deeds, and I placed before you an open door. So first he was saying that with the key, he has the authority and the power to open and shut the door of the kingdom. But he's also now taking that imagery of this door to another level, and he's saying, well, I've set before you an open door. I would suggest to you that this open door is a door of opportunity. Jesus is saying to this little church in Philadelphia, he's saying, you have an open door of opportunity before you. you remember that Philadelphia was known as a gateway city, a doorway city? They were kind of almost like a missionary city to spread Greek culture and language around the world. And now Jesus is saying, I've got a new mission for you. I'm going to redeem that mission. You are a gateway city. You are going to be the open door city. I'm putting a door of opportunity in front of you to be the city that can see the gospel come to the world through you. Little Philadelphia. And right after declaring, here's this door of opportunity, then he says to him, but you have little strength. So what's he, what's he saying here? Is that, is that a little bit of an insult or a rebuke? It may seem that way, but in context, it's, it's not at all. Really what Jesus is saying here is I'm giving you an opportunity, an open door opportunity to be this church that can reach the world, and guess what? You're of little strength, so you can't do it, you're gonna to have to depend on me. I'm giving you the opportunity to, to say yes and to serve and to be faithful even when you're weak, to live out the scriptural idea that we are weak, but he is strong. You see, we are most effective when we're humble and completely dependent and realizing that we need to fully trust and lean on God. And so when we think of that idea, I ask you today, what door of opportunity does Jesus have opening to you? What door of opportunity might Jesus be opening to us here at Bridgeway Community Church? What's our first response? Usually, I'm not worthy. I'm of little strength. You know that, Jesus. Jesus. Don't call me, don't ask me, no opportunity for me, I'm a nobody, I'm not very gifted, I'm of little strength. And Jesus is going, absolutely true, absolutely true. But you know what, Jesus doesn't call the qualified, he calls the faithful. That's what this little church demonstrates for us. They were of little strength, and yet Jesus is saying, I wanna open for you a door of opportunity. Will you trust me? and walk through it. What's your door of opportunity today? Are you using little strength as an excuse or as an opportunity to depend on the one who can gift you and empower you and use you to walk through that door? What an incredible op- promise and gift that Jesus wants to give to us. So after That incredible opportunity, he's got some more to say that gets a little harsh. So going down to verse 9, he says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So after this wonderful promise and this wonderful idea of the open door of opportunity, then it's like, whoa, harsh turn to this harsh language of calling the Jewish population of that city the synagogue of Satan. Liars. So why is Jesus' words so harsh to the Jews of the city? Now Philadelphia, like a lot of the cities of, of that Greek area at the time, had a, lot of, had a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Jewish population. Philadelphia would have had a prominent synagogue and, and Jewish population. And there was lots of tension between the Jews and the Christians. Now the weird part is, is that at that time, a majority of the Christians were still of Jewish, they, were Jew, they would have identified as Jewish and Christian. The fight was over, is Jesus really the Messiah or is Jesus a false Messiah and they're still waiting for the true Messiah was where the big conflict came from. And that would have been key here as to why Jesus' words are so harsh. The other thing that is probably coming out here, if you read in Romans chapter 2, the author of Romans talks about the idea of being a true Jew or a fake Jew. And basically what they're saying is, if you are Jewish just by your outward actions, by going through all the rituals and ceremonies, being circumcised, following the law, showing up at all the festivals, doing all the outward actions, if that's what makes you Jewish, you're a fraud. If you're going to truly be a true Jew, according to the author of Romans, it's because your heart's been transformed by the power of God and that you actually live out your faith and truth and integrity. And so the harsh language of liars is, you guys, you you Jewish community in Philadelphia, you're all doing all the outward things. You all look good and act good, and you smell and you look and you dress like you're Jews, but your hearts are dark. And that's why he has such harsh words for them. Probably the conflict between the Christian and Jews meant that many of the Christians were kicked out of the synagogue because of the controversy over, is Jesus the Messiah or not? And you might remember from a few weeks back that um, the Roman Empire had a deal with the Jewish people that because they were a monotheistic faith, they were given the freedom to not have to participate in emperor worship. And because many Christians were also Jewish, for a long time, the Christians were included with the Jews in that protection. But what started to happen in the conflict was that some of the Jews started to actually rat out the Christians to the authorities and say, they're not really Jews, they're not a part of us, you need to... to convict them and prosecute them for not participating emperor worship. And it got really, really ugly. So if you wanna know why harsh language and what's going on that was pretty ugly with this whole thing, that was all of the milieu of what's going on. And you gotta remember again that a lot of these people would have been interconnected very closely, maybe even be relatives. You might even have family members ratting out other family members because of how deeply rooted these conflicts became. So that's why the harsh language And yet, what does Jesus say about that? He says, I'm going to go to those people, those liars, and I'm going to make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, as i meditated on this, this was a tough one. And I'll tell you why. As I was meditating on this idea, what I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me was, Don, what do you love more being vindicated or knowing that I love you? And I was like, whoa. Don't we just love being vindicated? Don't you just love it when someone goes, yep, you were right. I was wrong. Yep, the way you think is right, the way I think was wrong. Oh, yeah, you were misunderstood, but no, we all know you're right now. And you feel, so, well, don't we feel so good when we're vindicated? Now Jesus is vindicating these people. So yeah, they're, they're getting that very, very truthfully. And yet we can read that and I think almost miss the greater miracle, the greater statement here that Jesus Christ, God's own son, is saying to this little group of people in this little church, I'm gonna let them know that I've loved you. I love you. Does that impact our hearts more than The excitement or the whatever we get inside from vindication. Just something I had to check my heart for. Encourage you to listen to the Spirit as he speaks to you on that. Now the second part in verse 10, he's talking about their faithfulness and saying, you've kept my commands, you've endured patiently. And now I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, because this is such a broad statement, this is sometimes felt to be futuristic and end times-ish. And really, though, it's talking about the coming persecution that was going to come through the Roman Empire, which was going to be horrid. There was horrid times of persecution coming to the church at this time. Jesus had already told other churches to expect it. What's difficult about this is, is Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to keep you, keep you from the hour of trial. Now what's confusing is, it's like, okay, well, Jesus, are you saying that if we're faithful, that you're going to rescue us, protect us, take us away from, cause the trials to go away? Doesn't seem like he's saying that, because you know what, the persecution and the trials came. Nothing could stop the fact that persecution and trials were gonna come. So what does Jesus mean by keeping them? I think what he meant was, if you're faithful and you endure, my presence is with you. My power is with you. My strength to help you endure and bear the burden that's ahead is with you. So that's a wonderful promise, but also a little bit tough for us because I think we'd rather live with the theology of if we're faithful to God, he'll come along and take the problems away. Or if we're faithful to God, we won't have to go through testing and trial because we're so good and holy that we'll escape them if we're only spiritual enough. I'm really sorry my sisters and brothers but that's not biblical theology. We will have trials and we will have testing and we will have that from within and without and all around us throughout our lives. The point is all through revelation and the rest of scripture is will we endure? Will we be faithful? You see when we pray in the Lord's prayer, lead me not into temptation, we kind of get mixed up there because we're thinking about being tempted. Whereas the Greek word there is really, lead me not into trials. Lead me not into times of tribulation or trial that could shipwreck my faith. You see, being true means that even though we go through the tribulation and trials, do we remain faithful? Do we endure and remain faithful and not fall and lose our faith because of the hardness of those trials? That's really what we're praying when we say, Lead me not into temptation. Lead me not, Jesus, into times of trials that could shipwreck my faith. Give me strength and the peace of your presence to be able to endure and faithfully walk through them and come out the other side, knowing you, believing you, stronger in you, and the recipient of these promises. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. He's not saying, I'm going to take you away and you're going to get to avoid the problems. You're going to have to go through them. Are you going to be faithful through them? And it's good and hard, all in the the same. Now, so Jesus has that word for them, and now he's got even more wonderful promises for them. Go down to verse 9 now. Or, sorry, Revelation 3, now verse 11. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus starts this part out by saying, I'm coming soon. Now this messes us up right away. Because if 2,000 years ago, Jesus was saying, I'm coming soon, and 2,000 years has gone by, hmm. That can sound like, how do we explain that? Well, here's what we misunderstand. The understanding isn't soon in the sense of how we think of it in terms of a short period of time. The understanding of soon here is really more like quickly, unexpectedly, when you least expect it, I will come. That's really what the meaning is behind this. Is Jesus, it's kind of like the thief in the night idea we talked the other time. When you least expect it at the right time, Jesus is going to come. So be ready, be prepared. That's, that's the word here. He's saying, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Remember, the crown was that, was that wreath-looking thing that the Greeks wore when they would win a race at the Olympic Games or a competition. You would get one of those crowns for being the victor. And Jesus is saying, run the race of your life and, and be, that, be that victorious, enduring one. Win that race and keep your crown because I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. Be ready. That, that's the picture here to them. And then he talks about this, this whole image of your pillars. He's saying, I'm going to make you a pillar in my house, in the temple of my God. Hmm. What do you think about being a pillar? Now, imagery in scripture has um, the kingdom of God or the church actually being like a living temple, like a, a building built with living pieces. And all of us are like a stone or a piece of that, of that huge kingdom or that huge temple of God. That's why we're called living stone. So the, the idea is of all of us as people together, the people of God being this living temple of God. So what he's saying to these Christians in Philadelphia that are patiently enduring through trial and hardship, who haven't, who haven't fallen away, they've kept faithful, he's saying, you know what, you're going to be pillars in that temple. I don't know if it's so much the idea of pillars being the strength of the building, could be that. I wonder how much of it is about staying power, because those pillars, as it talks about in there, they, they cannot be moved. They are so Foundational. Just wondering, you know, you probably heard the expression, oh, those people, they're, they're the pillars of the church. Have you heard that before? And I think when people say that, what they basically mean is they're, they're key leaders or key influencers or key deep spiritual people that they're pillars in the church, they're kind of holding us all up. And that's a really wonderful thing to say of some people. But let me ask you, my brothers and sisters of Bridgeway Community Church, do you wanna be a pillar? I know, you're of little strength, right? Yeah, me too. You're a pillar in this church. Now, what's the promise to these pillars? Did you notice all the times that Jesus talked about writing the name of God, writing the name of the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, and then writing his name? Do you know what Jesus is basically saying by that? He's saying, I love you and I know you and I believe in you and I am so incredibly overwhelmed by your faithfulness that I'm gonna declare to you that I'm not only gonna sign myself on you once, I'm gonna sign myself on you twice, I'm gonna sign myself on you three times because I want my Father and the enemy and the world to know that you're mine. I'm writing God's name, my name, and the name of the kingdom, the new Jerusalem, on you. Because that's how much I love you. That's how much I believe in you. That's how much I want to mark you. Do you want to be a pillar? Yeah. Being a pillar is staying power because of the faithfulness of God. It's not because you're amazing and you're oh so strong or oh so gifted or oh so spiritual. It's because before the Father, before Jesus, you can say, yes, I am of little strength. But Jesus, I want to be faithful to you. And if you have an open door for me, by your power, by your strength, give me the courage to walk through it. That door of opportunity and be that pillar in my church, in my church body. And let me just be overwhelmed with your love and affirmation of me that you're signing me three times to say, I believe in you, I'm for you, I'm your God, I mark you. That's the word to the Church of Philadelphia, and I hope and pray that that's the word to Bridgeway Community Church. That you can believe that your Jesus would think of you that way and want this church to be that kind of a church. So as we move into a time of response, let me just remind you of a couple of the questions I I asked through through our teaching time. And I asked the Holy Spirit, not the words of dawn, to speak to us. And so listen to the Spirit and allow Him to speak to you as we respond to God's word today. So I guess the main question I've been asking today is, what's the door of opportunity? What's the door of opportunity that Jesus has opened for you. As Pastor Bob reminded us earlier and reminded me of a previous sermon, are we willing to take that risk and walk through? Are we using little strength as an excuse or is it the opportunity to know that Jesus can equip us? Jesus can be our strength. Jesus can gift us. Jesus can qualify us. Jesus can lead and be the one up front so that we remain humble and dependent on him those are the ones he's calling out, those with that posture of a heart. And then this hard question that the Spirit had for me. Do I love vindication more than the amazing declaration of Jesus' love for me? And then the overall picture of this little church. Are you inspired today to persevere and endure? even under all the pressure, the pressure of our own internal sinfulness, the pressure of our culture around us, the pressure in our families, our friendship groups, it's everywhere. Can we be inspired to be faithful, even in the midst of that? Because our Jesus is for us. His power, his peace, and his presence promised in us. Let's be his pillars. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, sometimes your promises just seem too amazing to be true. Lord Jesus, we all confess that we most often feel that we're just insignificant. We're just people of little strength. We're just a church of little strength. So Lord, we we bring that before you, Lord, not in a posture of excuse, but in a posture of dependence, a posture of thanksgiving. And I just pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would just pour your power out now over each person here. Holy Spirit, come and pour into every heart that's opening the door to you. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, for open doors of opportunity for everyone in this room. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would continue to raise up pillars and let them know how much you're for them, how much you love them. Oh Lord, do that work in our lives? Lord, do that work in our church. Oh, Lord, door of opportunity for Bridgeway. Lead us, show us. Lord, we want to follow you. So this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we come to the conclusion of our service, we're going to come to the Lord's table together. And this will be an even deeper response of gratitude to what Jesus has done for us and the salvation that he died for to give us life and to give us freedom. So I want to invite you to come to the table today. So to prepare our hearts for coming to the table, I'm gonna ask you to, to prepare with this prayer And uh, you'll see the words on the screen. I'll read the main print, and I'll ask you all to read together the bold print. And this is an opportunity for us to both prepare our hearts, to confess our sin together, and then to just express thanksgiving and gratitude to Jesus for his death on the cross and for how these elements of the bread that represents his body, the cup that represents his blood, bring us salvation and freedom. So I invite you to to join me as we prepare our hearts together. So come to the Lord's table. All of you who love Him, come to the Lord's table. Confess your sin. Come to the Lord's table. Be at peace. Next slide, please. And again, please read the bold. We have not believed you or trusted in your power. Lord, Lord, Help our unbelief. We have stained our souls by our action and inaction. Cleanse us, Lord. We are a broken people, bruised by our sin and the sins of others. Weakened and unable to repair ourselves. Heal us, Lord. When we confess our sinful ways, God abundantly pardons. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are all forgiven. Glory to God. On the night of your betrayal, Lord Jesus, you took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to your disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You did the same with the cup after the supper, saying, this cup that is poured out, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, in remembrance of all you have done to save us, we offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Christ has come among us, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ abides with us, Christ will come again, amen. So I invite you to come to the table. I'm gonna pray, and then the, the worship team will lead us in a couple songs, and I invite you to get up where you are and come to one of these tables, and I'll invite the servers to come. They'll serve you from behind these tables. And come, come to the table. Come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for the gift of your body Thank you for the gift of your blood. Lord, I pray today that as we take that bread, that the bread of life will fill us and sustain us. And I pray that as we take the cup, we'll remember the miracle that we are forgiven and free because of your great sacrifice. Oh Lord, may we remember and worship you today and come in peace to your table. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, well, if you would rather not come forward, and for personal reasons, no problem, someone will come and be happy to come and serve you. So just indicate so. But please come.